right. And good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. We're really, really glad you're here to kick off our first series of 2017 Revolution. Uh, we'll get to what that's all about in just a little bit. Before we get there, a couple of things I just want to talk about. Uh, first of all, a special word of thanks to the church. Uh, just for how we start off, end out 2016, start off 2017, uh, the highs and the lows, the church has really responded. First of all, if you are here for our final service of 2016, we kind of had a Christmas Eve Eve service, and we had a chance to spontaneously share some love with a family and a community that had never been here before. Our, our new friend Karen that works over here at Publix in the bakery came in, just, I don't think she's here right now, I'm just kind of pointing in the general direction of, some people looked over there like, who is she? <laughs> Uh, but she works over the Publix in the, in the bakery over there, and we had, had a cake ordered, and we were just able to, she thought she was delivering a cake, and then we kind of freaked her out a little bit by bringing her down front, uh, actually talking to her a little bit, and just saying, hey, we want to let you know we prayed for you as a church, and gave her just a, just a huge tip, and just, I think for them, revolutionized their Christmas, so it was a really cool just experience to be a part of that, uh, but then also in the highs and the lows, and we've had a lot of loss, especially with, with Bailey's loss, continue to pray for, Erica, uh, for Terica's family. But just how the church responded there as well. And it had deep words of appreciation. So thank you just for being the church and the highs and the lows. Uh, the Bible talks about that. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And it's great when we have a chance to do that as a church. So continue to do that. I love being a part of a church like this. And as we head out into 2017, uh, we're really excited about some things. They've kind of talked about this. The hosts have already mentioned some of this and some they'll mention later. But I just want to reiterate this. As we launch out into each year, one of the things that we do that's very unique here at Ridgepoint Church is we don't have church membership, we have church partnership. Uh, and the thing about church partnership is it's a yearly thing where we kind of re-up our partnership every year. So as we get into January, we start to talk about that a little bit. This year is going to be a little bit different. Uh, if you want to be a church partner, we're going to have those cards out. I think it's next week we start having the cards out. Uh, but we're going to ask you to kind of pray about it, hold on to that. And the status meeting on January 29th, we're going to have a giant status. We're asking everyone, if you're part of Ridgepoint Church, be here, if at all possible, that night. We're going to share a lot of information about the coming year. And we're going to ask you to bring those cards that night and have everyone have a chance to kind of re-up their commitment for that year. Uh, Sunday night, January 29th, we're really excited about some information we're going to share in status. Uh, that's for people who are regularly part of Ridgepoint Church. If maybe you're new and you're kind of kicking out the tires and seeing what you think about the church and what we believe, and if you have more uh, kind of deeper questions along those lines, you're welcome to come to status. That's more of a general meeting. But then specifically on February 5th, Sunday morning, after the second service, we have an environment called Discover RPC, where people who are new to Ridgepoint Church can come and meet with the staff and have, have lunch and kind of talk through, here's what we believe, here's what we practice. And if you have questions, you can ask those questions of us as a staff and as leadership. So some really neat opportunities as we kick off the new year and as we kick off a new series that we're calling Revolution. Now, Resolution, that's a little bit different, but Revolution... Back when I was about eight years old, I had a chance. I grew up in a really, just a neat neighborhood. Something I don't see a whole lot anymore. Uh, but we had a lot of families, a lot of young families in our neighborhood. And, and for the kids, we all kind of grew up together, hanging out and playing outside. I think sometimes you don't see that as much. Kids are inside in their video games and stuff. But for us, man, we were always outside, uh, just inventing games and playing basketball and football and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but this particular, I think it's about the year I was, I was eight years old, it was uh, Christmas break, and we were on break, and you know, you're just trying to find stuff to occupy the time. And so our next door neighbor, 
It was, a, it was a large Cuban family, and, and they always did like a big celebration for any of the major holidays. And, and so they're they going to roast a pig for New Year's Day, and, and they're going to have this giant New Year's Eve party. And, and so the whole neighborhood was coming over there for that. And so all the kids got together beforehand, and we said, we want to throw this big New Year's party. Your parents are kind of throwing the party, but we want to have our hand in it. And so we started planning like the celebration, the countdown to New Year's. And a lot of the kids in the neighborhood were a couple of years older than I was. I was the youngest of the group that hung out. My brother was a couple of years younger, but he wasn't hanging out with us on a regular basis yet. He's a little bit too young for that. So I was at eight years old. I was probably the youngest of this group. And so they're giving people different jobs. And this thing went as far as like noisemakers and fireworks and older kids were shooting off fireworks. But for me, the youngest one, for, for little JJ, they said, hey, we're going to give you, they had a hollowed out metal pole. I think her mom used, his mom used it for like a, a clothesline which kids these days have no idea what that is, but, but, but they had this, this hollowed-out metal pole, and they said, J.J., here's what we want you to do. We, they kind of had it propped up against their shed, and said, we want you to lift that up, and you're just going to yell in that, that hollowed-out pole, and you're going to count down from 10 to 0, and when you get to 0, it's going to be New Year's, we're going to shoot off all the fireworks, and it's going to be the big party. And so I said, that's awesome. I was so excited. And as kids, we practiced this celebration, other than we didn't shoot off the fireworks. But we practiced all week long to make sure we had the timing right. And I was so excited at eight years old to be a part of this. The older kids invited me to be a part of this. And, and so New Year's Eve, we're kind of hanging out. I'm hanging out with my family. We're watching all the festivities on TV. And for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason at eight years old, I thought we're all going to watch the celebration happen on our TV and then go replicate it when we get outside. And so I'm watching the ball drop on New Year's Eve, and I'm watching all the festivities, and we count down from 10, and I celebrate real quickly with my parents, and I said, Mom, Dad, i got to run outside. We're about to do this thing outside. And I run outside to the noise of the fireworks going off, and all the festivities happen. I go running out to my friends. I'm like, wait a minute, I was supposed to count down. They said, J.J., you missed it. <laughs> like, you're supposed to be here 10 seconds before, and you missed it. And I thought, oh, no. Like, I miss New Year's. Like, what just happened? And I think for some of us, where we're at with, with setting goals for the New Year's is, is because of the, the rigid rules that we have in our life. Uh, we, we make these resolutions, we set these goals, and we're so rigid about it that when we mess up, we think, that was it. I missed it. I had my chance. I missed my opportunity. And it's all over. We're kicking off a series this week. We're talking not about New Year's resolutions. Now, there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. In fact, I want to do a random sampling right now. Who this year going in 2017, who set a New Year's resolution, at least one resolution for this year? All right, awesome. This side. I'm, there's like one person on this side. There's a few on this side. Here's the thing. Uh, a lot of people set resolutions. In fact, about 46% of the country uh, sets resolutions. I think some people might have been. Their New Year's resolution is I'm not raising my hand in church. So they were just living out the resolution. <laughs> It's all good. I got you. Um, and so about 46% of the nation sets resolutions. And going back to the beginning of 2016, what do you think were like the top New Year's resolutions going into 2016? Lose weight was number one. Exercise was in the top five as well. They broke those down. Uh, actually being healthy in general, was those were three of the top five. What else? I heard something about, bad. I'd love to get more sleep. That'd be a great one. Uh, breaking bad habits, quitting smoking was number two on the list. Uh, there's another one kind of obscure, but it happened only in 2016. Find a better job. <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, I'm all about that right now. Uh, not me. I'm, I'm content. We're good. 
Uh, but there were others actually going into 2017. This is really neat, but already they're saying going into 2017, uh, the number one resolution for this year was to be a better person. But I love, yes, that's a good resolution to have. But I love, my favorite was, I think it was from 2015. It was number eight on the list in 2015. But it was to help others realize their goals. Like, I just thought, man, if we're going to set out to do some things this year, what about instead of focusing on ourselves, we say, how can I help other people around me uh, set their goals? Now, here's the thing about those things. So when we talk about resolutions and the top five, lose weight, get a better job, exercise more, quit smoking, improve health, and all those things, uh, they're all good, they're all healthy, and I think they can help us get to a bigger goal. But the problem is, if 46% of the country makes a resolution, and on average, on every year, the problem is only 8% are successful in completing that res- resolution. Only 8% of 46% actually fulfill the resolutions. And I think part of that, part of the reason in, in our kind of intro this morning, we're going to talk about the difference between having a, a resolution and trying to produce a revolution in our life. Those two things are, are, are very, very different. And I want us, as we enter into this series, to, if you set resolutions, that's great, that's well and good. But I think those resolutions are going to be goals along the line of producing a bigger revolution. And so real quick, if you're a note taker, I want you to write these things down. But these are are ways, if we want to do something different this year, if we want to have a revolution instead of just having a resolution, four ways that revolution trumps our resolutions. Number one is this. Resolutions tend to be short-sighted. Revolution looks at the big picture. Resolutions are short-sighted. We set out this year, said that you and I were good friends, we're having a conversation, and we say we're going to set out if the number one thing is we want to lose weight this year. There are probably a few of us that could stand to, to shed a couple of pounds. And so we sat down beforehand and we said, man, we want to get ahead of this thing. We want to lose some weight. And so we set a very rigid goal. We say we want to lose 15 pounds this year. And you and I, we start getting after, we start exercising, we start eating healthy, we're out running, we're not stopping by Starbucks in the morning, we're, we're skipping all that stuff we shouldn't have. And, and three months in, we're killing it. And we've lost 15 pounds in three months. The good news is, we completed our resolution. The bad news is, we have nine months now, and guess what we're going to do? Put that weight back on. Why? I got my resolution done. I lost 15 pounds. In the end, I gained 30. So it's a 15-pound uh, net loss in terms of my goal. Resolutions are short-sighted. Even if we set out and said, this year, we want to lose a certain amount of weight by the end of the year, and we do that, there's still another year coming where those resolutions can lose their traction and lose that focus. Resolutions tend to be short-sighted. Revolution looks at the big picture. We set goals as a family to say, hey, we want, to, we want to be healthier just in general. We want to have a revolution in our family. We're not going back to those old lifestyles. It's not, a, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. This is now who we are. A revolution tends to be looking at the big picture, whereas resolutions tend to be short-sighted. Number two, resolutions are rigid. Revolution allows for there to be grace. I love the little girl in the video, and she was much cuter about saying this than I could ever be. But she talks about that, you know, like we're so hard on ourselves. We set these resolutions, and we think, man, January 1st, everything about my life is going to change. I'm not going to go back to who I used to be. I'm not going to make those mistakes. And those resolutions are really, really rigid, and we don't offer ourselves any grace. The problem with it is, say someone wants to give up a bad habit. Uh, say that whatever it is, it could be smoking, it could be like binge eating, it could be uh, whatever it is. It could be like making themselves feel badly. 
We have a tendency to, when we get stressed out, we go back to those bad habits. Well, resolutions are very rigid, and we say, I'm going to quit. In 2017, that's it. I'm going to quit smoking. And, and, and someone says, that's their goal, and that for the first couple months, they're doing really, really well. And then all of a sudden, they get stressed out at work, and something happens. And, and, and in the midst of that stress, they go back to taking on that habit, and then they get really mad at themselves. And they say, man, I messed up. I blew the whole thing. The resolution was rigid. I messed up. Now I have to wait till 2018 to kick the habit again. And literally, that's how some people, it's not that they want to think that way, but that's kind of what happens. Resolutions are, are rigid. When I say in my life, I want to produce a revolution where that's no longer my lifestyle, if I make a mistake and I go back to whatever it was that's pulling me down, I'm allowed to offer grace in that situation and say, okay, I messed up. But tomorrow's another day to make a series of better choices. Res- resolution is rigid. Revolution offers grace. Jesus steps into our life to offer us grace. Not that we're ever going to be perfect. If we try to live up to an expectation of being perfect, we'll never get there. But revolution in our life offers grace. Number three, resolutions tend to focus on the person. Revolution focuses on the mission. When I said resolutions, when I said this year, here's the things I want to accomplish. It's all about me. It's been, I want to do this, I want to lose weight, I want to quit this, I want to do this, and, and it's rigid, and it's not giving me any grace, but it's also focused very much on myself. When we talk about revolution, we're saying, hey, in order for there to be a revolution, I realize this, I can't be a revolution myself. I can help start a revolution, but I want to be a part of a movement. Resolution focuses on the person, revolution focuses on the mission. What is it we're trying to accomplish? And now who is it? that's going to help me get there? Who is it that I'm going to surround myself with to make sure that I can get there? Revolution focuses on the mission, not on the person that the resolution does. And number four, resolutions are shrouded in failure where revolution leads us to power. 92% of people, again, fail at their resolutions. Resolutions are shrouded in failure. Revolution gives us power because there's strength in that community their strength in saying, I want to make sure that I can do better. I want to focus on the mission. With that being said, if you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of John chapter 16. And I know we're going to show the words up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. But if you do have a Bible, I'm going to do something with us this morning. We're going to underline some stuff and circle some stuff. And so if you do have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open that up. If you have a pen, awesome. If not, there should be a pen right in the seat back in front of you. And if you're comfortable with it, I want you to underline some stuff and circle some stuff. In just a second. But in John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to his, to his followers. And sometimes when Jesus spoke to his, his disciples, he spoke in such a way. He used parables. He used hyperbole. And at first it wasn't always really clear. In fact, later on in this passage, we won't get to it this morning. But later on in the passage, the disciples actually complained about it a little bit. And said, Jesus, now later on you're finally speaking clearly. Why don't you always speak this way? But in John 16 verse 16, Jesus begins it with this statement. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And so it says in the next verse, verse 17, so some of the disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father, he says, so we don't fully understand that. And the next verse, verse 18 says, so they were saying, what does this mean, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So the disciples are having a conversation. So verses 17 and verse 18 are the disciples in the midst of this conversation saying, we have no idea on earth what Jesus means by this. 
he's speaking, but it's not clear to us. We don't fully understand. So verses 17 and 18 are this dialogue back and forth between the disciples, just of them saying, we have no clue what Jesus meant by that teaching. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, realized the conversation that was taking place. It says in verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. So he knew. Jesus makes a statement, and the disciples are like, well, what, what did he say? Like, did y'all understand that? They're having this conversation, and Jesus says, I, I know what you guys are talking about. Like, you're asking questions about that statement. Like, I, I know that that's what you're not understanding. And then he says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And I want to see. We're going to go back, and here's where we're going to do some underlining and circling in just a second. But I want us to see the contrast here between low moments and high moments, between uh, weeping and lamenting and, and joy in the next three verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will, t- will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So Jesus writes and has this teaching, and and at the end of the teaching, he says, here's my goal in this teaching. I want your joy to be full. Like as we go into 2017, though Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, he's saying to you and I, I want your joy to be full. I want your life uh, to accomplish much. I want you to have some measure of, of completion to your life. So how do we get there? Well, in the midst of this teaching, he has verses 20 to 22, a number of times where we can see a contrast. And always the, the words of negativity are always contrasted with words like joy and rejoice. And so we see words used, words like, words like weeping and lamenting and, and sorrowful and sorrow and anguish. But every time one of those words is mentioned, it is contrasted with oh, the word joy or the word rejoice. Seven times in those three verses, one of those words of sorrow and anguish and, and weeping, one of those words is mentioned. And five times, and each time in direct contrast, but five times the word joy or the word rejoice is used. So here's what I'm asking you to do. If you have your Bible in front of you, take out a pen. And we're going to walk verses, through verses 20 to 22. And as we walk through, and I'm going to give you a kind of heads up. But as we walk through, I want you to underline every time a word like weeping or lament is used. And then I want you to circle every time the word joy or rejoice is used. So beginning in verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. Underline that word, weep. And lament, underline the word lament. But the world will rejoice. Circle that word rejoice. You will be sorrowful, underline sorrowful. But your sorrow, underline sorrow, will turn into joy. We circle that word joy. When a woman is giving birth, and by the way, what an analogy for what he's talking about here. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, underline sorrow. Because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, we underline anguish, for joy, circle the word joy, 
that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow, underlined sorrow, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will circle the word rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Circle the word joy. And so each time, there's a couple of things we note from these verses. First of all, it it doesn't say that our life is going to be free from sorrow. We wish it was. But every time the word sorrow is used, it's in contrast to the word joy or rejoice. And interesting to note, uh, back in verse 20, it says, You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, if you and I were writing, and if we could write out our story, we wish that it would have said, or that we wish that we could write, that it said, your sorrow will be replaced with joy. Because if I could go back into 2016, and I could just take certain moments from my life, and just erase those dark moments, and erase the anguish, and erase the sorrow, and just replace our sorrowful moments with joyful moments, it would seem to me like our lives were a whole lot better off. There are probably 10 moments I'd want to go back to just erase from 2016 and say my sorrow was just simply replaced by joy and that sorrow was no longer there. But the teaching here isn't that your sorrow is going to be replaced by joy. We'd love that. That would be easy. But the teaching of Jesus here is that your sorrow is going to turn into joy. And we might not see that actualized right now. And that's the hard part. Is the sorrow is replaced by joy, we could see that right now the sorrow is gone and the joy is here. But he says our sorrow will actually at one point be replaced with, or, 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 or will turn into joy. At some point in the future, it might take some time to get there, it might take eternity to get there. But at some point, that sorrow, that anguish, the weeping and lamenting, will turn into joy. So he says in verse 23, in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, we have to be careful about how this is used. Because I know people, even TV preachers, that get up and say, look at this verse right here. Whatever you ask in the name of Jesus, he promises to give it to you. And we sit here and say, that's that's great. Father, ask in the name of Jesus, give me a million dollars. If that's true, if that's how it was meant to be used, we we could violate it in that way. But the teaching simply isn't there. In fact, in the book of James, it says you have not because you ask not or because you ask for the wrong thing. We can ask for the wrong thing, and that's not going to be fulfilled. But when we start to align our lives with with God's will for our life, and our will starts to be conformed to to the image of, of of his son and to his will, then when we start to desire things, when he changes our appetite, when he changes the things that we long for in our life, and we start to pray for those things, when we start to pray for a revolution, in the next couple of weeks we're going to talk about having a revolution in a couple of different areas. When we start to pray for a revolution, it's because now my life is captivated to his will, and I'm praying in the Father's will, and when I start to pray in the Father's will for big, huge things, for revolutionary things, when I'm praying in accordance to his will, he says, ask for it, and those things are going to come to fruition. And I want to see those things come to fruition, because when they come to fruition, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. When our will is aligned with his will, and we ask in his will, then that joy is going to be full. So we're talking today about bringing a revolution. And we want to see a revolution happen. Like, I would love to see a revolution happen across our world. I'd love to see Jesus' name be lifted up, see thousands of people and millions of people come to know him. But here's the thing we have to get at. 
when we start talking about revolution for the next three weeks, it's easy for me to look out and, and see the community and see the world, or even to look in at my small microcosm of the world and see my family and say, I want to see revolution come to my family. But before I see where other people have to fix their stuff, I look at my life. So, man, if there's going to be revelation, if there's going to be revolution, it has to begin with me being formed the image of my father, and me saying, "What are the, what are the areas that I need to grow? What are the areas that I need to change, in order that the world can be changed through me?" So, we're going to talk today about having this personal revolution. We're going to talk next week about having a revolution in our family. We're going to talk in three in, in two weeks from now, and having a revolution in our community. We're going to talk about a very practical way that we're going to make that happen that morning. But revolution for it to happen begins with me. Jesus speaking says, I, I do all these things. And he connects prayer with joy. And he says, I want you to have these things and know these things. If you ask these things in my name, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So we see that. We say, okay, when we want to have revolution, we want to change who we are. What does that look like for us and how do we do that? I want to look at one more verse real quick. In First Timothy chapter 4. We see this teaching on, 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 on godliness, ultimately. But it says this verse, it says, For while bodily training or bodily exercise is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So we look at the first clause that's there. It says, For while bodily training is of some value, it kind of says bodily training isn't as important as godliness, which it's contrasted with. But some people look at that and say, See, the Bible says that bodily training isn't all that important, so I'm not going to exercise to take care of my body. Uh, listen, it does say that bodily training is of value. And it's of value, then we should spend time making sure that's important. Our body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. We should take care of it. That means exercising, eating properly, doing those things. That is a part of it. But the contrast that's taking place there is that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of every value, and in value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. It's good to exercise, it's good to take care of our body, but bodily training only holds promise for the present life. I can work out, I can exercise, I can get in really, really good shape, but that's not going to help me in heaven because I'm going to have a new body at that point. So bodily training, bodily exercise only helps us out for a short season, whereas our godliness, what we long for in our life, helps us out now and in the life to come. Now here's just my observation about that. A couple of years ago, I started making a priority. I want to I get fit. I want to, in, in terms of my body and exercise, I want to make sure that I'm around for a long time. And so I started exercising combined with eating healthy and proper nutrition, all those things. I want to make sure that became a healthy component of who I was. And I started hanging out with people who that's how they kind of live and how they conducted their life. And, and they're an inspiration to me and, and all that stuff. And, and I started watching, especially some of the guys I was hanging out with, and, and they were like hardcore about this thing. Like they would say, I want to make sure my, that my body's optimal. And, and so some of the guys that I'd see, not always guys that I necessarily hang out with, but guys that I would see, they said, man, I want to get in optimal shape. So I'm spending two hours every morning in the gym working on cardio stuff. And then I spend two hours at night working on the weights. And, and I'm spending four hours a day, almost every day in the gym. And I look at that and say, that's admirable. I don't have time to do all of that. But that's awesome you're able to do that. And here are people who said, I used to be unhealthy. And now I'm spending four hours a day making sure that I'm healthy because I know that it takes time for me to get in optimal shape. We say, but godliness holds more value. 
And yet when it comes to where most of us are at, if these guys say, I know that in order for me to, to get in proper shape, it takes an appropriate length of time on a daily basis. And for me, it was never four hours a day, but there's times that it's an hour of, of working out. And I know that it takes time to get my body physically where it needs to be. And yet when it comes to godliness, it takes just as much investment on our part. It takes just as much time. And for a lot of us, we think, well, if I can pray a 15-second prayer before my meal, like I'm doing better than most. And if I open up my Bible app and I read a Bible verse a day, like I'm investing a couple of minutes to make sure that happens, and all those things are well and good. But if the amount of time we're investing in our spiritual growth is a minute or two or five minutes a day, then we're going to get out of our spiritual investment what we put into it. So we want to make sure that as we sit out this year, we want to see revolution happen. But revolution is congruent to the amount of time that we pour into this ourselves. Say, I want to be spiritually where God wants me to be. And it's going to be a time investment on my part for me to get there. Bodily exercise is of little profit, whereas godliness, what we long for, is of much greater significance. So real quick, you don't have a lot of time. I'm going to fly through this list real quick. But six things I see going into 2016 that if we focus on, that if we say we want to have godliness to be a part of our character of who we are, that, I, that if we do these things, we can make sure that's going, to be, that's going to take place. Number one, by making God bigger and me littler. In our lives, this flies directly in the face of everything that our culture has taught us. Because in our culture, we've become such a narcissistic culture where we want to build ourselves up and it's always looking out for number one. And, and we make ourselves really, really big and we look out for our satisfaction and our pleasure. But if we're going to seek out godliness, if we're, going to, if we're going to really seek that out in our life, it's saying, I want to make sure that God is big, that God is really big in my life and that I'm much, much littler. Listen, I love bragging on our church. I love talking about what God's doing in our church. But ultimately, even those stories, we want to make sure that God is the one that's being emphasized. Man, I can't believe what God is doing through our church. I can't believe what God is doing in my life because I want to make God the big one, not us, not me. By making God bigger and by making us littler, we seek out that godliness in our life. Number two, by being confident in the call God has upon my life. Listen to me for a second. If you're a child of God, if you've, if you've called upon Jesus, then he has a call, a very clear clarion call for your life. It's not always easily known. It sometimes takes us weeks, months, and years to figure out what that call is. But for every one of us, God has a specific calling upon our life. And once we figure out what that call is, we must learn how to walk confidently in that call. For most of us, we start to gain traction in our life spiritually. We start to take some steps. And maybe along the way, it's, it's failure. Maybe the failure is in the part of, of, I was trying to take the step of obedience, and I was trying to do this, and, and I struggled, and I fell off. Or, or maybe you try to reach out to someone, and it doesn't work out like you want. And it starts to leave us with this question mark in our life. And we live with this big, giant question mark. I'm saying, I don't know if I can still do this. I don't know if I can have success. I've had so much failure. I don't think I can do this. If we want to make much of God in our life, the second thing is that I have to be confident of the call. And when I mess up, I show myself grace. But I have to be confident of the call that God has placed on my life. That I know that no matter what, whether what the earth defines as success happens according to that call or not, I'm confident that I'm doing what he's called me to do. Number three, 
by spending time in genuine community with transparent authenticity. Two words key there. I want to have genuine community and I want to have transparent authenticity. When I started to, to make exercise uh, be a part of my life, I realized that the people that I hung out with were going to determine the success or the failure that I had in that particular area. If I want to get healthy and I want to start working out at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., I need to surround myself with people who are going to push me to do those things. If all the people I hung out with, when, when the alarm clock went off at 6 a.m., if they said, hey, go ahead and hit snooze, you don't really want to be up. If that's who I hung out with, that's the result I was going to get. If all, all I hung out with was people who, when I brought a, a salad for lunch that day, and they said, hey, skip the salad, we're going to get pizza. Like, if that's what we surround ourselves with, that's what we're going to get. You can't fly with eagles if you're hanging with turkeys. Like, it, it, it doesn't work that way. If we want to grow spiritually, we have to surround ourselves with people who are going to push us spiritually. Now with people, when we stumble, when we fall, are going to say, hey, that wasn't a big deal. I like, just keep doing those things. We want to surround ourselves with people who are going to push us to be stronger, to be more spiritually fit, to be better. In order for that to happen, a couple of things have to take place. First of all, I have to surround myself with the right people. Probably the most important component. But the second one, which might be equally important, if not more challenging, is there also has to be authentic relationship taking place. That means that I have to invite a couple people in my life that are going to be willing to ask the tough questions. And when they ask the tough questions, I have to be willing to answer with genuine authenticity. If I'm struggling, I need a couple people in my life that when they ask me, hey, how are you doing in that area? First of all, they're strong enough to ask. But once they do ask, I'm going to be confident enough to say, hey, you know what? I messed up this week. I didn't do this thing that I should have done or the thing that I said I'd never do again. I, I went back and I did that. And I need to surround myself with genuine community, with authentic transparency. Number four, by removing everything in my life that would interfere with what is God's best. It's really easy for us to, to look at the big things and say, well, I want to make sure I don't do this and I don't do this. And, and as long as I don't have like those, the world, what we describe as like those big sins, as long as I don't have that, as long as it's not obvious to everybody else that I'm struggling, everything's okay. But what I've seen, just in my observation, in almost 20 years of, of being involved in different areas of ministry, is it's not often the big things that get us off track. It's those little things that start to interfere with God's best in our life. And at first, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It says this, it just is a slight bump, and I'm still doing really well. But just this little bit gets us off track. And before I know it, my complete focus has shifted from where it was to now where it is. And a little bump gets me off that track. I want to make sure that I remove everything this year in my life that interferes with God's best for me. Number five, by forgetting what I think and focusing on what God knows. By forgetting what I think and focusing on what God knows. Say that you have a best friend in your life and that best friend comes to you for advice. They come and they're making a major life-changing decision and they want your counsel on that decision. And so they come and they pour out their heart, this is where I'm at, I have to make this decision. What do I do? For most of us, our response is going to sound like one of two things. It's going to sound like, well, I think you should do this. Or worse yet, I feel like you should do this. I'm going to base your, your entire life on the way that I feel right now, which if I ate a salami sandwich tomorrow, might change. Like, I don't know. 
if we change it just based upon our feelings or even the way that we think, that can get us in, 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 in problems and in, in, in dilemmas. I had a pastor when I was really, really young uh, in, in youth ministry. They used to always make this statement. And he would say that opinions are like noses. Everyone has one, and they each have at least two holes. I thought, you know, that, that's true, that, that if, if all we have is our opinions, and someone comes and asks us advice, and we say, well, I think you should do this. I say, okay, what is, that, what is that opinion grounded in? Is it just literally that, hey, I, I thought it through myself, and if it was me, this is what I do, so that's the best advice I can give you. Or is our advice and counsel, is it based upon the truth of, of God's revealed word to us? See, I'm not confident in my opinion, but I'm confident in this. And in most situations, if someone comes to give us advice, one of two things is going to be present. Either there's going to be something directly from Scripture I can point to and say, hey, you should or shouldn't do that based upon this. Or there's going to be some practical application from this that at least can give us the basis of a starting point for a good conversation. So I don't just want to do things this year based upon, well, I think I should do that, so let's go do that. But I'll base it upon the truth of God's Word or the truth of the Spirit of God speaking into our lives. The final one is this. It's by looking out for God's kingdom and neglecting my own kingdom. If we're going to make much of God in our lives and our church, and we say, God, I want to see your kingdom advanced, whatever that looks like, it's not for our kingdom. God, we want to see your kingdom advanced. And again, this flies directly in the face of our narcissistic culture. But we say, God, I don't want to do things just because it's going to advance our agenda or our purpose. But literally in my life, in my family, in my community, I want to make much of Jesus. Because if he is lifted up, he's going to be the one drawing people to himself, not me. And so in my life, I want to make sure that with everything that I have, that God, I'm doing my best to advance your kingdom. That your, your joy is going to be made complete by saying, God, I want to make much of you. I want to see your kingdom advanced. And as your kingdom is advanced, and as I become aligned with that vision for your kingdom, that I start to have joy, and I start to pray big, audacious prayers, because my will is now aligned with your will, and I'm seeing great things happen, and I get excited about that. Who wants to see a revolution this year? Like, really, who wants to see a revolution this year? Like, I want to see that. I want to see that for my life. I want to see that for my family. I want to see that for my church. I want to see that for my community. I want to see that for my world. But in order for those things all to take place, I realize revolution begins here. Because if I don't align myself with God's revealed will for me, then I can't worry about those other things lining up. But if right now in the stillness of this moment I say, God, it's time for me to get right. It's time for me to get serious about this. And I align myself up with what he has for me. Then I start to be an influence, a better influence in my family. I start to be a better influence on my community. And ultimately, I'd be a, better, be a better influence in the world. But it begins with me right now saying, I want to make the steps that I need to make to align myself, God, with who you want me to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace in the midst of our rigid world. God, Jesus died to offer grace. He died to make life possible. True life. And so, God, I pray for the person this morning that is farthest from you. God, it might be the person that has, has never begun a relationship with you. They don't even know what that looks like. God, I pray that even right now that your spirit would reach down to where they're at.
and would rescue them. They'd realize that our sin has separated us from you, that because, but, but because of your death, you're dying on a cross, you're willing to take that sin for us. That all it takes is us calling upon the name of Jesus to come to save us. God, for the person who never made that decision before, I pray that even right now, this would be the moment of their salvation. And God, for the person who's made that decision, but it's been a long time since they've been really submissive to who you want them to be. Maybe they've gone through the motions and they do the church game really, really well. But God, they're not actually genuinely seeking after your heart. God, I pray that you develop in them right now a love a love for you, a love that's going to change their behavior, change their attitude, but a love that brings about revolution. But God, that's what this world needs. For the person farthest from you this morning, for the person who's closest, God, I pray that you allow us to make the steps we need to make, to conform our will to your will, to conform our lives to your perfect life. God, this would be the mark of our life that would have talked about in 1 Timothy 4, that godliness would be what we're longing after. That being a godly man and woman would be who we are. God, help us be that person and draw us closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.